So I read a good book at the dog park today. Uh, it was uh, It's called Felon. It's by Reginald Dwayne Betts. I had heard a fair amount about uh, Betts and had read a little bit of his prose, but had never really read much of his poems. So I got this one at the, the bookstore recently, and it's good. It includes one of the few guzzles I've ever liked. I really fucking hate the guzzle as a form. I just find it like very monotonous and self-indulgent. I mean, granted, it's a poem in which the same uh, phrase or word at least necessarily repeats every two lines and then it ends with an invocation of the poet's own name. So there's some degree of the monotony and self-indulgence that's baked into the form. But I, I don't I don't tend to like guzzles. This one I quite liked and I, I'm going to read it at some point on the show later on. But I, I thought it was a good book. I thought it had a handful of really, really strong poems and a lot throughout that was just stirring and thought provocative and and phrased in ways that were that made me think a little bit differently about language not not enormously i was on a text thread with alice and cameron this morning and as well and they uh cameron went on again about his his mad prisms of language that he loves uh i i'm not you know i'm not as big a lover of mad prisms of language uh, this is not a book with a lot of mad prisms of language though it is a book in which there's a fair amount of pretty skillful meter and rhyme deployed very quietly. Uh, I had not known Betts was much of a formal poet, but at any rate, I'm glad to know about him. I'm glad to read some poems of his. Uh, and I have heard he's a very interesting thinker and talker. So at some point I would love to have him on the show. A thought that did occur to me apart from the quality of the book itself, which was, as I said, hi, good. And it's a, it's a nice looking book too. It's well, well designed. Uh, there were a number of grammatical errors in it. Not not a lot, maybe three or four that I noticed. Now, much of the book is written in a vernacular English in which, you know, in keeping with you know, the conventions of uh, a black American speech, the the verb to be is often dropped, The uh, as well as the possessive S. So there's certain, you know, there's certain, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of book that's written in a way, the way that people talk, not necessarily the way that one is used to seeing words put down in print. And that's fine. I don't consider that an error at all. But there were also, you know, like subject verb agreement errors in cases where, in cases, here's an example that I think is probably not deliberate. The accumulation of our yesterdays hang like the last dusk before us. Now, if yesterday's was the subject, then hang would be conjugated correctly. But the subject is actually accumulation. So that I, I'm pretty sure is an error. It's also an extremely common error that people make, particularly because accumulation appears on the line before. So not a big deal at all. Certainly not uh, a, a major fault in Bet's work. But I do count it as sort of a strike against the editor, because in addition to a handful of grammatical errors, I thought it was a book that could have done with some trimming. It could have done with a, you know, a, a thoughtful editorial hand to say, this is, you know, the, the, this lags a little bit. You use the word redact twice in the opening guzzle. It's a fairly uncommon word. Granted, it's one that bets uh, employs in a, in a larger project that, he, that he's working on, but not in that poem. It's just a verb that he's gotten used to using a little more than one might normally. 
And that, you know, was uh, those two those two stanzas, along with maybe one or two others, were sort of soft spots in the guzzle. It was a when it was a book where I thought you you could have done with somebody to just play the the, the slightest bit of devil's advocate or tug of war with the author, which is generally how uh, books plays, movies get better by having somebody who is not the primary author saying, mm, what if we, what if we, uh, uh, put, what if we press here a little bit? What if we pull back here a little bit? I had an excellent editor for my first book, Alex Pebble, who questioned me on very small, you know, very small matters of, of diction as well as, uh, as, as well as larger issues of clarity and even, you know, <laughs> asked me to find a few more poems to include uh, for the sake of making the volume thick enough for the spine to support text because I had such a such a stripped down collection that the they were afraid they were going to have to put put it together with a staple. So he, he spent quite a, a good deal of time with me on that collection. And, and I thought it struck a good balance of, of putting pressure on me, questioning some of my decisions, nitpicking, uh, you know, really, really uh, uh, looking out for errors, but also nitpicking moments of carelessness, moments of self-indulgence. And he also uh, uh, let me have the final say in most cases. So I don't know. I don't know who edited this book. I tried to look it up and I wasn't able to find it listed anywhere, obviously. And I don't know what conversations might have occurred, but I have a guess because I have found that Alex, great man that he is, is not the rule when it comes to books of poetry, particularly with the big presses. Now, I know that a couple of regular listeners to the show, at least, uh, at least, we'll say, of the people who listen to the show and let me know that they listen, I know at least a couple of them uh, are are published by major, you know, big five publishers. And so they may have uh, good insights into what the editors do for them. But this is not the first book published by a major press. This was published by Norton that contained just some sort of inexcusable errors as well as some obvious uh, excesses. Just some some things that, that any thoughtful editor, any thoughtful reader should say, well, this is maybe this should go, right? Not because uh, these poets or these, not in, not in all cases poets, in many cases poets. Um, this is not because these writers are bad, but because every writer needs somebody to ride them a little bit, to pub, you know, pull against them a little bit to to make them to bring them to their best and i suspect i was talking with alice recently about an episode we're planning about masculinity and femininity and it was occurring to me that i'm going to have to define the term fighting words so i'll define it later but uh for future reference alice here's an example of fighting words <laughs> i think that most editors of most poetry books, especially the big ones, especially at the, 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 the most popular ones, the, the biggest presses, the ones that actually sell a lot of copies, I'm fairly confident that apart from selecting the poets, in many cases based not necessarily on the quality of the poetry, but on the appeal of the name, uh, the, the appeal of the, the, the persona, the reputation, the platform, etc. Uh, apart from making the selection and, uh, and 
and uh, overseeing the physical construction of the book. When it comes to the text of the poetry collections, I strongly suspect that the vast majority of poetry book editors do fuck all. Nothing. Don't touch the words, don't look at the words, and in many cases, don't give a shit about the words. Not because they are not good, not because they are not worth giving a shit about, but because that is the role of the poetry book editor. And the, well, I'll pull back. At smaller presses, I think the editors give a shit. At the big five, I'm guessing Shane is already composing an email telling me that his editor gives a shit and is is a wonderful person and he has a good relationship. And I believe that. I I still, I, I I am suspicious of the category. I've read too many books of poetry that clearly weren't edited by anybody. So uh, there are my fighting words for the day. I await your righteous indignation. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening. And thanks especially to David Clark, who, who is at the Suwannee Writers Conference right now with my wife, and who apparently in a, a little session that he did today uh, brought up the podcast, told a couple of people about it. So thank you, David. I know uh, lots of the rest of you have also recommended the podcast to a friend or to a class or to a family member or whoever, and I am grateful for that. Word of mouth is really what makes the difference. So thank you all very much. If you have not yet taken advantage of the uh, my little summer promotion, go to sleeverickets.substack.com and sign up for a free trial. All you have to do is list your email address. You're only giving it to me. I don't send out a bunch of email. Uh, if you put it in, I will give you a free week's trial of The Secret Show. You can go on, you can download all nine episodes that are on there now, uh, as well as any that come out in the next week, which I think will be one. I've been doing I've been doing like maybe three a month, it's sometimes maybe four, we'll see how it goes, probably not quite every week, but, but in addition to the main feed, uh, there are all, you get all of the episodes that are already there, as well as uh, aiming for maybe three three new ones a month is about it, I think. Three, maybe four, we'll see. Uh, but there are some really fun ones up there now. I put one out just last week, just Friday, I think. So please go to sleeverkinsaustubstack.com and sign up for a free trial now. All you got to do is, is um, sign up for the free subscription and I will take care of the rest. And I've written some emails. I've had a correspondence with a couple of you. If you have signed up for a free subscription and you're having trouble with the Secret Show uh, link, let me know. Write to sleeverkinsaustubstack, uh, sorry. Write to sleeverickets at gmail.com. I think sleeverickets at substack.com also works, but I've not, I think that works and it should forward to my uh, main email account, but I'm not sure yet. If you want to give it a try, I would appreciate that just to help me, just to help me get my fucking bearings as a, uh, as somebody who's not all that fluent in internet technology. So thanks for all of that. Uh, oh, and the uh, tea public lady asked me to tell you all that there's a big sale and the t-shirts are substantially cheaper than 
um, than they usually are. And if you are a Secret Show subscriber, you have a special top secret unguessable hacker proof code you can enter to get an even bigger discount. So um, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Slavery Goods t-shirts are T-Public. People have been buying a fair number of them recently and they come in just about any color you can think of and a few different styles of t-shirts for those of you who are into different styles of t-shirts. I know if nothing else, they have uh, t-shirts for ladies and gentlemen, uh, which you should feel free to mix and match. All right, I had planned to put out an episode that was all about email, uh, listener email this week, and specifically email and Twitter and text messages in response to the rabbit hole. Uh, But then uh, the big recording I did of the first part of that uh, episode got fucked up. And it's been a long week. I'm solo with my four-year-old this week while my wife is in is it Suwani and our other daughter is at summer camp. Um, so it's just just Ellie and Echo and me, and I'm worn the fuck out. So instead, this week, I'm going to give you a, a really fun conversation I, I was saving up a little bit that is not at all what was planned. It is It came out a lot weirder and more personal than I'd, certainly than I'd expected. Initially, it was sort of about a an Atlantic article on uh, fantasy football, which I have no interest in, but it it turned out to be a, a good deal juicier than, than I thought. Uh, and then we also talked about uh, a, a depression and friendship and uh, a very sad and very funny short story. So I I'll just let the episode speak for itself. I think I think you will enjoy it. I really I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed editing it as well. So I'll give you that. And then at my dad's request, who said uh, he said I saw him recently, and he said uh, I should go back to putting a poem at the end of every episode that sums everything up in a really tidy way. And I told him finding a poem that sums everything up in some random fucking episode is really hard to do. Uh, but I will at least do it this week because I have a poem I've been wanting to share. And I think it actually suits the, at least the the latter half of this conversation pretty fucking well. So I will get to that at the end. Thanks. And here's my conversation with Brian. One, one thing I'm curious about, cause I wonder how much the algorithm is, is sussing out my, my interest. Cause I would never voluntarily like, oh, I'd like to read this article about fantasy sports. But the the perhaps deceptive, I mean, the, sort of deceptive, still sort of accurate title that they gave me was Can Men Be Friends? And right. So I clicked on and that the, ti- and it turned the title, out yeah, sorry, the title I got me? was um, The Age of Fantasy Sports, period. Which seems like, those seem like, very, like there's very little potential overlap between those titles, right? Like there ends up being in this right. article, but like that's a pretty big range of possible article that, yeah, that could be when you click on it. But before before we get to it, do you have any questions yeah. about fantasy sports? Because he doesn't really define fantasy sports. He doesn't really say what he, what, what, what role it played in his life. He, he assumes that we have a bad attitude towards it and sort of defends it before he abandons fantasy sports. But just before we get to the article itself, I imagine 
although the, the statistics, you know, suggest that like 99% of men in America between the age of like 15 and popular. 35 play f fantasy sports, I imagine the Slee Ricketts audience might <laughs> be a slightly have lower a disproportionate sense of that one percent. Yeah. So is there anything that you, you need me to describe or explain about fantasy sports or is it, is it relatively straightforward? Can I give you my brief understanding of what it, what it is and how it works and you can correct it? Yes, of course. All right. So there are professional sports leagues where people play games with each other at a very high level. And then there are people who are fans of this. And then some of these people uh, put together leagues in which they the rules work out to be that, that the beginning of the season, they take turns as in a professional draft, picking up all of the players from the league that they want to have. If you're a team. simpleton, you do a draft. Otherwise, you do an auction. So the, the typical oh. way to to get players okay. is for what you described, which is in a draft, where if you have 10 or 12 people in a room or over a Skype call, you take turns. So you go 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then the 10th gets two picks to make it fair. And then it goes okay. 9, 8, 7, 6, up to 1. Then 1 gets two picks. That's called a snake draft. Okay. And you take turns selecting the player you want the most at the time. The more sophisticated way to do it is you all start with $200 and then you name a player and you bid for the player against one another. So that way, as opposed to waiting until it's your turn to make a pick, I theoretically, see. every pick is in play and you can decide whether you want to bet bid $42 for the running back or 43. Right. Obviously, if you bid 44, then you have less money for the other players and it's more calculation. But yes. Yeah. In the beginning, correlating with the beginning of each season, you either through a draft or an auction divvy up the best players among what are usually 10 or 12, but sometimes can be 14 teams. And then within the regular season, my team will play your team, for example, and then my team will play Joanna's team, and then my team will play Alex's team. And while I'm doing that, your team will play Joanna's team. And Joanna will play Alice's team for as many weeks as there is the regular season. And then based on whoever has the best record in those head-to-head -head competitions, there is a playoff right. system. But you skipped like a big confusing part for me. Like how the scoring works. How the scoring works. Because the players on the Brian team are in reality on lots of different teams, all playing right. in different combinations. So by far the most commonly played uh, fantasy sport is fantasy football because there's only one game a week where you really have to be a maniac to play fantasy baseball. Because okay. for play fantasy baseball, there are every team most days. And if you're doing it correctly, you have to follow every single Sorry, you, you skipped a little bit, so just clarify. In baseball, what happens? In baseball, every team plays most days. So there are 162 um, baseball games in in a season ah, okay. so yeah. there are only there are only 17 football games so most sane fantasy sports players um insofar as that can be play fantasy football because they really only need attention to um 16 or 17 uh weeks 17 games and each one takes place um on a, on thursday through sunday of each week so it's just there's a lot less to to follow whereas for okay basketball and then much more so for baseball you need to be following uh hundreds and hundreds of players in dozens of games every single day yeah so my team for example might have the quarterback from the jets and the running back from the giants and another running back from the steelers and two wide receivers from the buccaneers and the bears and then those individuals based on how they perform each week 
um, I get points. So for example, for a running back, for each 10 yards he runs, I will get one point. For every fumble he loses, I will lose two points. For each touchdown he scores, I will get six points. For every time he catches a ball, I will get one point. And then if I add up all the points accrued by my quarterback, two running backs, two wide receivers, tight end, defense, and kicker, I will have something like 127 points, whereas you adding up all the points accrued by your quarterback and tight ends and running backs and receivers might have 103 points, and I will win that week, that week's game. So my okay. score, my uh, I'll be then 1-0, and you'll be 0-1, and, and at the end of the season, maybe I'll be you know 14-2, and um, so then I'll make the playoffs okay. and play in a single elimination round against the three other teams that made the playoffs okay what, what, what this article gets right is there's a performed masculinity to this that really is irrelevant to the proceedings otherwise that yeah, yeah. allows people such as myself who normally would be disgusted or appalled by that sort of cavorting to do it with a, an ironic detachment but but right. also it's like the first time somebody wrote somebody's name on the cup you know for the winner they spelled it wrong so then like every year we purposefully misspell <laughs> the people's names now yeah. you know and we try to do so in in humorous whimsical ways and like what what, it, what the story got right is it, it creates its own ecosystem full of inside jokes and and an opportunity to sort of flex verbal dexterity in like very cruel funny ways about things that we know aren't important. Okay, like if we yeah. say like, like you only wanted to marry your wife because she used to be pretty and someone you wanted to sleep with, but now she's fat and you hate her, like, but you can't get divorced with the community will think about you. Like, there's no joy in that. Like no one, no one's going to go like, <laughs> no. like, Oh, right. You can't, you can't but, enjoy that vicariously. <laughs> right. There's nothing, there's nothing like fun about that. But if Jesus. but if you say but if you say like um, oh look who picked the wife beater uh, back again this year Azarva like we all know that Azarva you know like tendencies so like it's funny that he happened to pick or maybe not coincidentally picked the guy who was accused of beating his wife in the offseason, you know and now is very good at football so there's a right. there's a way to again like um, perform. Uh, masculine, heteronormative behavior yeah. in a slightly detached, slightly ironic, but sincerely funny way that I'm sure, you know, uh, Trump voting MAGAites do in a not dissimilar way to Brooklyn urban intellectuals. I think it reminds me a little bit of the way some guys I, would, I knew back home would playfully tease and mock each other in the in the manner of what they imagined like homosexual people to be right and it's totally having your cake and eating it too i mean it's it's yeah. the madison cawthorn video that that came out this is the guy who is a republican congressman mm -hmm. who, who seems like to doing hate a gay naked people game with his and like took cousin. off all his clothes and got into bed with his cousin and like rolled around yeah. and pretended to have sex with him and like yeah. the difference between pretending to have sex with your cousin <laughs> rolling around naked and having sex with your male cousin rolling around naked is is yeah. like very much in the eye of the beholder, but but it's that he sure. was enjoying the rolling around naked yeah. as he was enjoying mocking the idea that he would roll around naked. And in, mocking in the idea very, that he would enjoy a, it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. But he got to enjoy it while enjoying the, the mockery. Right. I think it's the same thing here. Yeah. It's like, what if we were all professional athletes? Like, right. we what if would we were the kind big, of guys who would make like, this joke? Assholes that I'm who would right make now. this joke. But yeah. we also get to enjoy the, the joke. I am 
interested in, in this idea of friendship as as a significant um, part of life that that needs to be maintained or because or, that seems like the implication that he is struggling because he says all his time is essentially spent um, with um, work and family. Jennifer Senior in her article on friendship said something similar where there's the friendship gathering years and then there's the, the friendship enjoying years mm. or, or something like that. Um, the implication of which maybe I'm getting slightly wrong, but is that you, you don't have as much time to gather new friendships when you're yeah. more settled in your professional and, and familial life. But could it just be that a professional life might matter to a person and take up a lot of that person's time and a familial life might matter to a person to take up that person's time in a way that friends mattered more in high school, college, grad school because the lack of a family like i yeah yeah i, I think that totally makes sense but I, I think that can be true and then what can also be true is in the way that like lots of high school and even in some cases college athletes they're get into like really terrible almost like exaggeratedly bad shape when they are out of school because exercise was something that they just breathed in like oxygen when they were in school and then when they got out of it they didn't they didn't then take extra efforts to maintain it. I think like it can also be true that like friendship does something really important for you. And when it becomes something that you have to go out of your way to do, most people just stop, don't do it. And then you, you like, even, even if that's largely because you're, you are consciously more concerned with your family life or with your professional life, you, you're still not getting something that it would be good for you to get because it used to be something you could do more or less effortlessly. So the author discusses a friend of his who isn't part of the basketball league. I don't think we get a name for that friend, but that friend um, lost his job at a restaurant during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And he writes the following about him. He immersed himself in a new diet and workout routine, which he cataloged in detail on Instagram. Other than that, the closest I got to a full view of how he was doing uh, were the times he tried to FaceTime me. I answered him probably twice. The main reason implication is that he didn't answer him more than twice was my work and family. Um, a little bit later on, um, there was something more shameful and less defensible there too, an aversion to intimacy, to vulnerability that had long been the subtext of our relationship that I couldn't articulate to either of us. Later on, they stop interacting, then they, they begin talking again. When I tried later to explain, and only partway succeeded, um, in explaining this to my friend and committed to texting him more, we both knew it wasn't enough. And then we have this sentence that really confuses me. However, it confirmed the need to treat our friendship not as a given, but as something I owed to both of us. What is he saying there? Oh, well, I mean, I think that's just talking about, I think he's just referring to the obligations that arise with like a long-term relationship. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm not sure what, what he's saying about friendship. Like, because I, I happen to live with, with my closest friend. I, um, which I, I haven't spoken a lot about it on, on this <laughs> show, but I, 
I was very, very ill for a couple of years. I was essentially bedridden for a year. I was dizzy all day, every day. And, um, and I was incapacitated um, and I'm heavily medicated now and I'm able to participate in life. I have said that much. What I, what I haven't talked about is over that course of time, my wife um, took a, a big job at, at Facebook which had her traveling a lot and my kids were zero and two and a half years old. And my, my life really was unraveling and it was, it was profoundly difficult um, psychologically and just logistically. And a good friend of mine um, moved into our house and we have, we have a brownstone and in Bedsty, we live in the unit in the middle, the duplex. Um, and now my sister lives. I, I rent her the. We rent her the apartment on the first floor, and my my closest friend Eli lives on the top floor. And that's the contours of my life for the most part. I have my two sons, my wife, yeah. my sister on the first floor, my closest friend um, upstairs, and you know it, it has a bit, bit of a sitcom vibe to sure. it. And yeah. uh, I. I think that's reasonable. I I think that there are certain friends who could use more of me, um, who would 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 benefit from me checking in on them more often. Who, yeah. who don't have a, a partner or a, a a life that you know a professional life that is particularly meaningful and and would would get meaning not not because I'm spectacular as a person, but because I am a person and having an extra person in your life especially you know somebody with whom you used to have a, a very good relationship or an intense relationship would be would be valuable to them and i've it wasn't a formal decision but but at some point i i decided like i've got this chronic illness i've got the three four five people in my house plus my two parents um and, and i don't i don't have much time for for others i is that a wrong decision is that an immoral decision it feels like like jen senior and the author of of this would judge me for that but i don't i don't know as 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 the the parent of young children it seems like my responsibility should be to my my spouse and my young kids and yeah and i was i was very lucky to, to have a friend without a spouse and young kids who was able to to come and, and take care of me in some way and i I, you know, th th there's some like uh, global reciprocity I probably owe owe the world or, or something for that. Um, but I'm I'm limited in, in my ability. And like, fantasy sports is a way that I get to bullshit with friends yeah. I wouldn't normally have contact with. So like, the is this a bad thing aspect of of the article seems like a stretch. Seems like clickbait, and I I don't understand it. F fantasy yeah. sports seems like truly delightful in, yeah. in my mind. I, I get to interact with um, 11 people who used to be very good friends of mine, um, you know, uh, groomsmen of my wedding, some, um, some of whom were just good friends of mine. And I get to have an excuse to to bullshit with them every once in a while. And it, it seems like a, like a wonderful artifice to, to maintain a, a friendship outside my immediate, you know, familial and professional life. I, I don't, I, I guess I don't see the need to complicate it as this article does. It's like, oh, it's nice to have this little extra way to be friends with somebody. And yeah. if, if I had time yeah. for more friends, you know, that would be nice too. Just like Slee Ricketts is like a wonderful way for yeah. me to dive deeper into my friendship with you. And like that, yeah. that's great that there's like a, a area behind it. And like, are you monetizing our friendship through the secret show? And like, should you like mistrustful of, <laughs> of what you're doing with the t-shirt sales? Like that's 
no, like I'm, I'm doing this <laughs> not as a favor to you, but I'm doing it because I enjoy it and it it deepens our friendship. And the same thing with like uh, the fantasy sports, like it's it having artifice around friendship feels totally um, not only okay, but like natural and normal. Like I, yeah. I go to oh, yeah. work twice a week and I teach and I have colleagues with, with whom I'm friends now. And if I didn't teach in the classroom next to them, I, I wouldn't be friends with them. You know, like that, that seems fine too. Like the, yeah. the is this a bad thing part um, seems pure magazine writing extra nonsense. And the, the whole concept of creating structures for different degrees of intensity of friendship feels okay also. So like I, my, my takeaway of all of this is like, yeah, fantasy football is funny. And like people's spouses matter more to them than their friends. I, I do though think when he says like, this is an obligation, because I think part of what I hear you objecting to is that he says the, uh, that friendship and this particular effort involved is something, is an obligation I owed him and, and owed myself. And that I, I I read in that also that the friend owed him and, and you know, that this is something friends owe each other as an obligation. And that, uh, I think it's. I think that's pretty true. I think at the same time that that it is also totally reasonable to make choices that require you to fall short in those obligations. Like part of what I. But then, what does the word obligation mean, right? Because like in, inherent in the obligation is that you're obliged to do it. It's to to me, it's a lot less obligation and more choice. Like I am very lucky in that one of the downsides of my. Uh, neurological disorder is that I can't take on as many hours of work as most people I know. So I do have a little bit extra time to check in with friends and send a bullshit email or a text or a yeah. rickets or a, or a something, you know, yeah. in a way that that my wife, for example, doesn't. And I know that one of the things that she feels most profoundly lacking in her own life is is friendship. Um, yeah. But she works 16 hour days and that's a choice she made. So like, is she obliged to be a better friend to people in college who, with whom she was really close and who still want to maintain a level of friendship with her? I, I don't know what the word obligation means at, at that point. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess like it's part, something that I like about at least certain versions of Christianity, as well as like Camus' approach to existentialism over some other people's, is that like it's possible for there to be lots of like I'm trying to find another word than obligation. But like that, there is a theoretical good life and a virtuous life that we do that is like that is a real because I think like what doesn't ring true to me is that like oh God, my friend really needs me, and it would be. And like, I love this person and this person is in great need. And in fact, I could go do something and really make that person's life better. But also it's much more pressing for me to be here to drive my kid to school. And so I'm, I'm not going to help. Like just because it's much, it's totally reasonable for you to drive your kid to school and you're, you are going to not go help your friend. I don't think that makes that feeling of obligation disappear. I just think that it's true that like, I think part of what I like about Christianity is that they sort of accept that like people are not perfectible and like it, you're going to be, you're going to fall. Like, you're always going to fall short, but that doesn't mean that you're not falling short. Uh, like there is a, why do you always have to repent for not falling short? Well, I didn't say I like everything about Christianity. I just think like that's, but that's part of, I think like it's something that I don't necessarily like about a certain stripe of secular progressivism is the, 
is the like subtle suggestion that people are perfectible. And if we get the right laws and we do the right things, then we will be living the right way. I think like there is in a weird way in like the current- Right, but that's your issue with yeah. Twitter as much as it is with secular society, right? Well, not it's just like Twitter. Super like, easy to... Right, I mean, I think, I think like it's in our, our neighborhood and in like conversations I have with with people when we venture into politics. I, 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 don't, I, I don't mean to say that like you are bad and I am bad because we don't do everything we could do for our friends, but I think like, that we make reasonable choices that involve not doing everything we could for our friends doesn't make that debt or that link or that tug disappear. It's just there and we we just are we just have to choose which in which way we will constantly fail. <laughs> but isn't it better to feel that tug, make a choice and move forward than to feel that tug forever and feel like you're not meeting it yeah yeah would it be better if we if we were able to control our emotions rationally like probably in a lot of ways but we're but, not but you were saying slightly, something slightly different earlier you, you were saying that there's a value in that tug reminding us of our fallibility at all times oh well well no what i'm saying is actually that the the worldview that says that that exists is an accurate worldview. Like it's something I like about Christianity. Like Christianity's account of human beings in this respect, I think is a more accurate account than uh, than like liberal Twitter's account of human beings or like, or, or like whatever else, you know? I had a friend in college who um, went to my college on an athletic scholarship and was very conscious of the fact. Well, I don't even know the fact, was conscious of his thought that everybody around him believed he wasn't academically uh, capable of being at college with us. So he had a, this this attitude from the beginning that everybody yeah. thinks I'm only here because I'm good at sports and everybody thinks I'm an idiot. And it it really beat the shit out of him, that, that yeah, feeling. That and he sucks. would uh, he would um, drink a, uh, a lot most nights to the point of of blacking out, vomiting, um, and and freshman and sophomore year for for sort of anthropological reasons, but also because he was when sober. I I, I thought he was a really funny, good guy, and I had an easier time hanging out with athletes than non-athletes for some reason in, in the beginning of of college. I, I I considered him one of my closest friends, and he would he would come back and he would he would be vomiting all over, and I would try to have a like a, a receptacle into which you would vomit, like a garbage bag or a, a a garbage can or something, and he would he would try to like punch me and knee me in like the stomach and chest while I was yeah. catching his vomit, because um, he was totally out of control and and was yeah. trying to hurt himself and hurt other people around him. And horrible. for some reason, I kept on doing it. And I, in retrospect, I don't really know why. It had some sense of obligation. And, um, yeah. And he he started drinking a little bit less and he became a little bit more confident and we became less close friends. And he, he told me towards the end of, of college that um that I was, you know, one of his closest friends in college. And he, he thanked me for being his his closest friend. And that 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 made me feel nice. And then over the next 15 years, he kept on doing like really mean stuff. And and he would show up at parties then he would be like really drunk and angry there and and be mean to people or he would like like say cruel things to my friends whom i introduced him to and uh. and then he would apologize and say how we were we were really close friends 
So he still once in a while calls me up for advice or for friendship or because he's um, just sobered up again and needs needs help. And I feel that that tug of like, I, I've been playing this role for this guy for a long time right. and I don't want to anymore. And it was when I got sick, I, I decided like, OK, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I'm not th sure, this yeah. isn't I'm not I'm not going to be there for this person. I'm not going to do I'm not going to help his, him him his life be any better. Um, and I stopped returning his calls and I once in a while would text back something innocuous. And now that friendship is over. And I, I think I made the right decision, although that Christian tug that you're, you're discussing, I, I definitely still feel because it's yeah. sort of shitty of me to have played a role for a long time and to stop playing that role. Yeah. But I bring, I bring him up because that's a relatively uh, easy situation. I don't think anybody would blame me for no, it, no, especially right. yeah. a simplified version as I, as I described it. So if he is on one side of the friendship spectrum and on the other side is my closest friend who sort of gave up a lot of his life to come and live with me and take care of me as I have done for him in the past. And I would you know, get someone else to drop my kids off at school or, you know, leave my wife alone for a week or two if it meant taking care of him, because there really is a, a sort of familial almost bond with him. I think there's a spectrum with with every other friend I have, yeah, and I would put course, them yeah. somewhere between one and, and the other. And that to me seems totally reasonable. And acknowledging the tug of friendship and saying, but I choose not to sacrifice at all or as much for these other friends for whom I would sacrifice in the past doesn't seem like something I knew to be apologetic for or no. that, that I need to really think very much about anymore. And, and if there's a, a system, fantasy football, slea rickets or otherwise, that lets me interact with these people in in a simpler, more, more straightforward way without a lot of the other emotional baggage, that seems yeah. great to me. Um, yeah. Is my vision of friendship uh, non-conforming to yours? Did, did I say anything that seems offensive or, or, or misguided? Not, not really. I mean, I, I think I the one thing I would really question in your story about your vomiting friend is that like that doesn't really sound like a friendship. That sounds like a service and a, like a a, a a parasitic kind of relationship but like like it does i mean i think like for so maybe except that, that that being a parasitic implies that i didn't benefit from it in any way but in fact i must have benefited from it because i extended it for years yeah. i think that it made me feel good that i was somebody he thought of as a friend it made me feel good to be able to take care of somebody it made me feel That's, good to I mean, feel you, like you I, are... I was you are kind of begging the question that when you say like that I did it means it must have been self-serving because we only do self-serving things. Like, I mean, if, if you were, if you were also saying like you did genuinely feel something that you were glad to have, or you were glad, you were glad to feel in the moment, then. Yeah. yeah. And he was funny and I, and I liked to hang out okay. with him when he wasn't drinking and, and hitting yeah. me. I, 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 it was okay. a dysfunctional friendship, but, but it was right. a, okay. it was a friendship. No, so, um, but but they, like there were also good times as part of what you're saying, which I think you did not. For sure. Before. All of this was a long run up to my saying, do we owe anything to our friends in our yeah. middle age? Yes, but that doesn't mean we will make good on that debt. Like I, th I think so. So here's a, here's a, a shorter and 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 probably uh, unfairly sim simplified story of my own, uh, a, 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 a once very good friend to both to Joanna and me, uh, who, who had increasingly 
um, had always been very eccentric and then increasingly became mentally unstable uh, was was institutionalized. And when we were uh, right right when our, uh, our first child was a, n- a newborn, uh, was institutionalized and um, had 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 systematically alienated everybody else in her life and uh, in a in a, a kind of an, a, a, an excited intense um, gesture like got out of her institution that she was in and said, I'm, I'm coming to Baltimore. I need someone to stay with. Can I stay with the two of you? And, right. uh, and Joanna said, yes. And I, uh, you know, an invitation that I, I think I, I endorsed, you know, I would have said the same thing if she'd asked me directly. And then a little bit later wrote back and said, I actually don't think I feel okay with this. Like, and, and she, as she explained to me, like this person is demonstrably unstable, has behaved in like violent and erratic ways with other people. We have a newborn in our little apartment. Uh, we have to, we have to, we have to put her first. And I, like, I felt very, very bad about this. And the friend was furious and immediately cut us out right. of her life with a very angry note. And I responded saying that I felt bad, but also that I, you know, supported join us to say like, we, we were, we were on the same page, you know, like, I think she, I'm obviously going to side with my wife first at the same time. Like I totally think that we let down a friend. I think it's sort of true that like we, you can't really fault us for what we did. And of course, like, especially when it comes to your kid as a baby, you're, you know, like that, that has to come first, but also it doesn't seem accurate to say, well, we didn't let her down at all. That was totally, nope, that's fair. The accounts are clean. Like I think, I just think both of those things are true and it just sort of sucks because we're limited, you know? So did David Foster Wallace tell the story adequately from your friend's perspective? Oh, that was a slightly different situation. Like the the depressed person story is one that I have played every part in and feel like I constantly play every part in all the time, my whole. So let's, let's talk about that. Cause this is, this is a whole lot more. um, There's a whole lot more to discuss in the depressed person by David Foster Wallace from Harper's magazine. I haven't played every role in this story. I have a lot of uh, feelings about it as a story and (laughs) would love to, to discuss what I think works and what doesn't. I would like to hear, introduce it to our listeners and then yeah. we can we can have a spirited um dip. yes okay so the depressed person uh is a short story it's i suspect you would describe it as an eight page story that feels like 30 <laughs> pages or something it feels like, like ten thousand pages yeah it feels <laughs> it, it was it was published um probably two years after infinite jest um and feels longer than infinite jest it <laughs> It never, never ends, yeah. the depressed person. Uh, but I, it's only eight pages. Yeah. I, I've, uh, so the, it's, it is about a, a, a female depressed person who's never named except to be called the depressed person who, uh, I, I'll, I'll read the, the first couple sentences. Oh, I should say, I, I believe, I may have missed one, but I believe every single sentence in this story is like notably a long sentence. And some are, are extremely long, but they, there's the usual rhythm where you break up 
long sentences with short sentences in order to give your reader some relief is sort of studiously avoided. And it's just, it's in, truly relentless. Including, including all of the sentences in the multiple footnotes. I mean, yeah, this which, is- Which at some point grow much larger than the, pr the print of the proper story on the page. And again, there's no doubt that especially after Infinite Jest at this point in his career, all of this is very much by design. That nothing is. Oh, yeah. It's not like where we where we talked about how Garth Greenwell wrote a first sentence that said, "I like long sentences," and we discussed yeah. if it was Whether if he purposely wrote a short. And like the answer is, he was probably just talking. It's clear that David Foster Wallace is making all these decisions very, very specifically and yes. has absolute control over every brilliant and despicable um, aspect of this story. Yes. So I'll just, I'll just read the, the first two sentences and then I'll try to sum up the basic, because there's not a, a, a straightforward plot that there is a little bit of like domino falling causality. The depressed person was in terrible and unceasing emotional pain. And the impossibility of sharing or articulating this pain was itself a component of the pain and a contributing factor in its essential horror. Despairing then of describing the emotional pain itself, the depressed person hoped at least to be able to express something of its context, its shape and texture, as it were, by recounting circumstances related to its etiology. Uh, you then get a br brief summary of her, some of her, her childhood suffering with the, the hands of some divorcing and, and it sounds like, you know, relatively self-centered parents, though who knows how much more than normal. Uh, most of the story is about the depressed person talking to her therapist about her friends or her friends about her therapist. And most of these conversations are, are dizzyingly multi-layered conversations in which she discusses discussing the discussion and all of her feelings about all of the many periods of recursion in her obsessive uh, perseverating thought all about basically the, the terrible problem of wanting very much to talk to other people about her pain, but also both finding that finding that addictive and necessary, but also no real relief and feeling horrible guilt about doing that, uh, and then resenting everybody for the guilt that she feels for uh, knowing that she's making everybody have a terrible time. And it and like and, and then how does it, it end? Oh, and uh, the the, uh, the the therapist um, ambiguously kills herself, uh, yeah. and the yeah. and then it ends with the depressed person articulating at, at excruciating length a a question to her very best best friend, uh, demanding in completely untempered terms everything that the friend thinks critically about the depressed person and and every way in which the depressed person has inflicted uh, uh, major or minor emotional and, and social uh, and, for, and sororal uh, pain on the friend. And then we kind of end with the articulation of that question. So... I also would just quickly say, I have read the story many times. Every single time I read it, I laugh out loud throughout the entire, entire story. I find like, I, I had to stop underlining because I find like half of the lines in this story truly hilariously like laugh out loud funny all right so you were just talking about um how at the end she's talking to her best best friend and asking how unbearable she the depressed person is and we get this sentence and this terrifying set of realizations instead of awakening in her any sense of compassion empathy or other grief for the 
therapist and here the depressed person waited patiently for an episode of retching in the especially available <laughs> trusted friend to pass so that she could take the emotional risk of sharing this with her. These realizations seem merely to have brought up in the depressed person still more feelings about herself. So that sentence is funny because it's as an aside, the fact that the depressed person's closest friend has all this time to listen to the depressed person talk about being depressed because she herself is dying of some sort of vicious horror answer um, and is retching during the conversation. So the depressed person has to stop to let her friend keep on retching before she can continue taking the, quote, emotional risk of sharing, unquote, with this woman. So that's the sort of joke you like in this piece. Yeah, right? yeah. And, th and there are some that are like, like because there's another one where like invalidating this compromise, the therapist, who by this time had less than a year to live, said that she felt. But I think there's another type of joke that is not so much a joke of like contrast with real problems or contrast with real suffering is a joke that I think of this as being a story of emotional, like exquisite emotional slapstick. Like it's like watching the people, somebody try to move a, a piano up a set of stairs and like continually falling down in, in increasingly elaborate ways. So like, despite overwhelming feelings of reluctance on the part of the depressed person, the therapist had strongly supported her and taking the risk of sharing with members of her support system, an important emotional realization she, i.e. the depressed person, had achieved during an inner child focused experiential therapy retreat weekend, which the therapist had supported her in taking the risk of enrolling in and giving herself open-mindedly over to the experience of. I mean, it's like every effort to solve any problem is immediately defeated and then like in 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 in, in, in a uh, a balletic complexity that just only gets more convoluted as the story goes on. Right. And and the convoluted nature is really obviously is the semiotic as well, where you talk to the it's not told her to do it, but helped her brave herself yeah. to take the risk of being right. vulnerable enough to go, yeah. you know, to he, so like he, it's he all uses like like scrupulously correct grammar to to like grind out uh, sentences with with just t tortured syntax throughout. So like we, so, we end on a lot of prepositions by very much by design. Yeah. Right. And uh, David Foster Wallace is, is funny like this because he, in the round of interviews that he either begrudgingly or pretended begrudgingly did after Infinite Jest, he's, he always complains about how in his rapturous reviews, everybody loves the book so much because it's funny, but he doesn't find the book funny. He finds the book incredibly sad. And infinite jest. I, I feel yeah. like there's a lot going. Uh, there's that here also, where he is essentially doing shtick. He's yeah. he's writing joke after joke after yeah. joke, pretending it's not jokes, pretending it's for the sake of emotional weight and to demonstrate that sort of depression. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I found a, a infinite jest to be an, a just amazing drag. Like it felt like. Like if if instead of doing like a three hour movie that had like that had like eight awesome disconnected scenes, you know, if Quentin Tar Tarantino instead made a one thousand hour movie that had eight awesome sorry, scenes, hang on, that's oh sorry, yeah, like I, I think like Infinite Jest was was like had lots of great parts, but it was so much bigger and more boring than its great parts that it was not a good book. This I just find to be a laugh riot, um, and I would I would be very surprised if he would sincerely claim that this was not like meant to be a funny story. Really? Even after he killed himself, you think he would claim that? 
Oh, I, I mean, I think he wouldn't claim it after he killed himself because he probably wouldn't claim much of anything. But no, I think he, I think like what I, I read this as being like the very best slapstick. It is both uh, hilariously in, in, like it's it's a hilarious and exaggerated demonstration of an extremely truthful uh, uh, shortcoming and like and like physical incompetence and emotional incompetence. But is it? It really just being like a super. Oh, I think it's I think it's a super accurate. It's one of the few like very very accurate depictions of depression I think that I've found in literature that we feel really satisfying. I think it's a comic one, but it just feels like it really gets it. It very accurately conveys a certain sort of catch twenty two that is involved in depression. I did so actually. Did this this literally this morning? I had an experience from this story with my dad. Uh, I didn't. I wasn't telling him about how depressed I was, but I called him about uh, travel scheduling. And forty five minutes later, I was giving him a an impromptu speech about how like dogs' willingness to eat other animals' shit has like is like directly and obviously linked evolutionarily <laughs> to the like health effects of like human emotions. And I just heard him say, "Uh huh." Yeah. Oh, someone's at the door. And he literally gave me the someone's at the door line and then hung up, which is which is directly out of the story. I was in the middle of reading the story when I, yeah. So yeah, I mean, like I, I, I totally relate to all corners of this story and I just find it very funny. But, but I also- well, What about like, the David Foster Wallace-ness of the story? So we, uh, we discussed the the story, uh, Incarnations of Burned Children mm -hmm. in a previous episode. Yeah. And in that story, David Foster Wallace gets out of his own way and he he, he has certain tics yeah. and he has yeah, yeah. a mother and a father and long sentences and sort of some repetition. Yeah. But even just to, to reread what you read, just the first sentence of the story, the depressed person was in terrible and unceasing emotional pain. And the impossibility of sharing or articulating this pain was itself a component of the pain and a contributing factor of its essential horror. So the three pains in the first sentence mm -hmm. followed by essential horror is such a look at me sentence and the same thing the the repetition of depressed person depressed person depressed person i the um footnotes that grow and grow and grow anytime he's yeah. asked about footnotes he talks about you know the fractured reality it means that he needs to have fracture his prose and as the extent that he can do so footnotes or endnotes are the best ways to to do so and then he the, the vocabulary i i haven't read this type of david foster wallace for a while where he puts in crazy words for no reason and if there's a reason let me let me hear it but maxillofacial health meaning having to do with his or, face or and yeah. jaw or, or or something or or teeth or there's another one later where she's looking at her um therapist's office and she she writes, the therapist's chilly home office also contained on the wall opposite the bronze clock and behind the therapist's recliner, a stunning molib denim desk and personal computer hutch right, ensemble. Yeah. Was that a word you knew? No. So I have to look it up. It means it's a lead-like element yeah. um, in, used in making some steel, like hard metal. Sure, yeah. But that's not a word used to describe furniture. So no whose mind are we in in any of this like yeah, i don't I, mean, I don't i don't get it i don't know what he's doing like if this is just a description of being depressed then why does he step on his own toes so much why is why does he have to david foster wallace the whole thing up to, to this extent so so um, the, 
the molybdenum I feel differently about than the maxillofacial. But whose voice is maxillofacial? Well, I think it's all in his voice, but it's it's like I mean I, I, I read him as narrating the story not even in a true close third, but almost in in a like uh a nineteenth century omniscient close third. Like I almost read him as like a somebody who's able to observe her mind and is himself commenting on it. Uh, but why does that help this story? Because the, the what the, the answer to my question, or the yeah. easiest answer, is why it helps the story is she is in she's not able to articulate any sense of self. So we need right. an outsider to tell her story in order to get to the core of her pain. Because if you have the dual theses of this story, it's one: it is impossible to make a reader feel or make anyone feel the sort of severity of depression and and, yeah. and that pain and then on top of that this woman is not capable of making anybody understand anything about her own life so that distances other people from her life even more from in her life even more from from that pain but the idea that david foster wallace needs to come in and and you foster wallace tricks and language and footnotes it just feels so dated to me in a way that I was surprised and that great art tends not to, and yeah. I haven't read much of it lately, but in the same way that like reading Barth or, Bar or Bartholomew right now feels like, yeah. oh, it's like a Barth or Bartholomew thing where like yeah. they're doing like the tricks that they do. Like I, I, I was so um, alienated from this story because oh. of how, how, Foster Wallaceian it is, and, and, and you know I, I was like a huge Dave Eggers guy growing mm -hmm. up. I, yeah, I, yeah. I read everything he wrote until he started writing unimpeachably moral fiction, and I I, right. I mean nonfiction. I, I, I had trouble with that, and I stopped reading it, but I still like his fiction. But you go back to a heartbreak, heartbreaking work of staggering genius, and it is so dated. It's it's almost yeah. readable, where it's it's so of the moment, where it's fascinating as a you know a historical um artifact more so than a work of literature and i feel that way about this story where like we know david foster wallace committed suicide we we know he was a depressive we know he did all these david foster wallace things and i i can't get over it just how actively he decides to filter all of this through what seemed to me to be an arbitrary um, cotillion of, of techniques and ways that he has decided to write. What's the argument against that? I Yeah, I mean, I, I can't defend every choice of diction in the story, but I do think that that in a little, in a, he, this is a little bit like the the right man for the task. I think he writes in a, you're right, in a, in a quintessentially David Foster Wallace-ish way, but I think it's just the right, it's just the right technique for the problem. That like one of the essential conflicts of this character is that she feels a need to explain what is going on, but she is, she is, I mean, at least in, in this sort of weird hybrid her slash Wallace voice, she, it's, the problem is not that she needs some insight from her friends, that she already has a truly exhaustive understanding of every aspect of this problem. And so she can't help but articulate this, this uh, painfully thorough perspective. And it's his, his knack for 
articulating complexity in, you know, conversational, if performatively, uh, you know, complicated sentences enacts really, I think, accurately and, and persuasively this problem for her. She can't help but the depressed person found this fresh loss so shattering, its result in hopelessness and despair so unbearable that she was forced now to reach frantically and repeatedly out to her support system, calling three or even four different supportive friends in an evening, sometimes calling the same friend twice in one night, sometimes at a very late hour, and sometimes even the depressed person felt sickeningly sure, either waking them up or maybe interrupting them in the midst of healthy and joyful sexual intimacy with their partner. She, she can't help but already anticipate all of the different angles on this problem. And I definitely recognize like the, the weird double impulse to express a feeling like this while also saying like, let me just preempt any insight you might feel feel obliged or inclined to offer because I, I've already thought of it and it won't help. 100%. And that seems like his, and, and even the footnotes feel like an extension of that, that sort of unnecessary but inevitable complication. I agree. The only place that I disagree with what you're saying is that I think what he's demonstrating is how perceptive David Foster Wallace is on these moments of depression and this feeling, which is why I think Stephen Dixon is a greater writer than David Foster mm. Wallace, because Stephen Dixon has written very similar stories to this, but he stays inside the mind of the depressive and he doesn't step out and do footnotes and polysyllabic crazy words that I have to look up, but he makes me live within the suffering, sad man. And at the end of it, I feel suffering and sad. I mean, the story Sleep comes to mind, especially where he writes a story about a man whose wife dies and how he can't fall asleep. And you're you're caught up in the mania of the repetition of him needing to sleep and him going through the life of his wife and going through his own life and being so tired. And it is an exhausting story, but you empathize with the character as opposed to here where you laugh at the character. And maybe there are moments of empathy oh, here God. with the laughter, but I see this as David Foster Wallace flexing literary muscles and more than more than literary muscles, like um, empathy muscles. Here, I, I, I see David Wallace saying, look how good I am at understanding this pain, a pain which is impossible to explain, but now I'm going to, to short, sort of demonstrate my tour de force in, in explaining it, where I, I didn't, I, I don't think that's necessary. I, I think this is him showing off I, uh, more than him putting you in the mind of a depressed person, which is why I think, again, Stephen Dixon does something very, very similar with similar antecedents of Bartholomew and Barth and Cheever in some ways yeah. and, you know, other other writers. But he and, and they both also have styles that are so uniquely their own where you read four sentences by Stephen Dixon and four sentences by David Foster Wallace, you know, immediately who wrote which of those sentences. But I, I just think that there's a, a cruelty to David Foster Wallace mm. and a look at me bravado that Eggers has and that Nicholson Baker has and that Barth and Barthel may have, but that Dixon doesn't have. And that I think that the best writers don't have, you know, that uh, anyway, that, that's, that's where yeah. I get pissed off at, at him. And I'm, I, I would love to hear your response to that because this, this story uh, pissed me off the more that I read it as opposed okay. to made me feel um, empathy. You're hearing this crisis in the other room. Do you find that when your kids are yelling or when your wife is yelling at your kids, you are paralyzed in this way I do? I can't 
if if my kid is tantruming or being mean or something, I, I can't eat or literally piss. Like I, if I'm standing there trying to go to the bathroom and I, I, I can't start urinating or continue to urinate if I hear like my kids in a frenzy in that way. I, I find the connection so visceral that I, I am um, completely paralyzed by, by their emotional reality. You're in, and you're talking about like in situations where you're not, where like it's there, you're, there's a reason you're not intervening. Like if, if sort of somebody else has it in hand, but you're hearing it. Either if somebody else has it in their hand and I'm hearing it, or if I'm deciding not to intervene because I want right. to ignore Sam when he's tantruming. Right. Yeah. Either of those cases, I find myself physically unable to eat or relax my shoulders or urinate. Like I, I yeah, I don't think I feel that. I do. I am very sensitive to uh, to uh, noises and yelling and stomping and and in like even whining or like that that makes it impossible for me to think a thought but i don't feel i don't think i feel that same kind of like to the extent to which i could still think and do something i i don't have that hard a time yeah breaking off from that unless it's unless like the question is like well i do i need to go jump in yeah no i envy that i uh i there were moments um, when Owen was a year and a half, two years old before Sam was born, where he would be crying in a stroller mm-hmm. and I would be physically incapable of making a decision or like, no, like mm-hmm. where to go with the stroller or right. like whether to take him out or, and Alex would get frustrated with me. She, she'd be yeah, like, yeah. just like, do, do the thing. And I, 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 I couldn't, I physically couldn't. It's something I've never really felt like that other than specifically with kids when they're out of control. But I, I, you know, somatically attached or something to, yeah. to, to their emotional reality. It's, it's fucking weird. Yeah. I do feel, I do feel that link and it'll come up with like physical, like, you know, my, one of our, my daughter's got like a weird, had a weird reaction to some bug bites. Like it's just like agonizing, but yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a little bit different. Um, Oh, yeah, all I was going to say is, I mean, everything you're saying makes sense to me, and I haven't read hardly any Dixon, and so I, I totally believe that he's written a story that does this same thing better. I have not read anything else that does quite what this does, and I do think that apart from the immersion in a depressed person's perspective, what I appreciate about this story is that it is specifically about, I mean, as the, as the, the first sentence suggests, it's, it's not... It's not a. It's not about depression in total. It's about talking about it, and and talking about talking about it. That that's the that's the particular wrinkle and trap of this story. I don't. I also. I think like though. Just on a on a, at a at an initial read, I I find it very funny, but I also find it deeply like empathetic. Like, I totally empathize with the with the central character as well as with all of her friends and her therapist. And I, I read it as like, I think it's a female depressed person only because that was a way for him to make it not seem so embarrassingly, obviously autobiographical. Like I I read this, I assume this is him. I mean, so do I, I, And that, and that cruelty towards himself and towards his friends and towards the psychologist, it, 
are all just sort of natural and honest explanations of the cruelty that he feels towards himself and everybody. And then is that where we, I mean, I I don't know how you're supposed to separate him from from his work any more than than you are, you know, Woody Allen's or or anybody else's. But like, is that an explanation for why he threw a coffee table at Mary Carr and tried to push her out of a moving car and stuff? Like, I, like, it's just hard. It's so hard for me to, to see this, this sort of, cruelty in this towards every like he's he's making fun of all of these characters and i yeah but in a way i, I feels guess so right like it feels so true to the experience of being all these characters that he, they all deserve to be mocked or that they all have that mockery well, like, it's, in them that it's not only that they 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 can be mocked or they have that mockery in them but like it would be inaccurate not to mock them. Like there's there's a there's a Baudelaire sh- short thing, prose poem, short story that I love, in which an old woman talks about how now that she's old and decrepit, she can see that everybody finds it painful to look at her and be around her, and it's really really relentless. And she's like it ends with like the beautiful baby that's her granddaughter that she just wants to hold and is so thrilled to see, looks at her in horror and cries, and it, it's so. <laughs> punishing but it like the way i read it it's like it would be more cruel to pretend that there was not some truth to this like not that everybody actually has that total response to her but like that feeling that everybody has that response is a genuine part of her experience i kind of wonder if there were a story about a a i mean i don't i don't like like get weirdly personal like if there were a story about a dizzy guy that like part of the story was making fun of like the inevitable confusion and humiliation and like frustration of being dizzy in a way that was also funny. I could imagine my finding that kind of painful and shitty in a way that for you, it might strike a nerve and think like, oh God, this really gets it. That's interesting. So you think that because you're more of a depressive than I am, you are I just so much allowing to every right, sentence of this story. Like, to every sentence feels but like, oh about, God, this is so right. But, but what about that? The, the name of that metal that that is lead like what yeah that feels why, like a, that feels like why is that there yeah. I, I and like like the, the, the adjective choice. apian which i i didn't look up but i assume it means bee like because yeah. an apiary is where bees yeah, are right yeah. so the we sat there listening to the depressed person always sat there listening to the empty apian drone of the dial yeah. tone i mean that sentence would definitely be better without the word apian one because the dial tone doesn't really sound be like and right. empty drone of a dial tone is already works already, on its own yeah. so i just yeah. don't i don't get what that is like i don't these are these uh, are such aggressive yeah. decisions uh, that that i don't i don't right. know why he did that yeah i mean I, and, I, and then I, that pisses me off and it starts making me look for more which is why then i go to right. the 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 end notes and, and thinking like well part of the power of of this is i mean and part of it, an explanation of the endnotes can just be David Foster Wallace wrote with footnotes and endnotes. So why am I picking on it here? But I, I he doesn't always. He doesn't in Incarnation no. of Burn Children, which is more powerful right. than this. But and I also I, think this, I this don't, they make a kind of sense here. Like they, this is also the way that the think the thought like the 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 pattern of thought of the whole story has been full of these parentheticals and full of these like you know I mean like there's a moment where the where the 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 depressed person holds up her hand, which of course he has to describe as being like particularly gross because she chews her nails. She holds it up to silence her therapist so she can explain further that she's already thought of the thing the therapist is going to say. And to me, like that's the microcosm of the whole fucking story. And that's including the footnotes. Right. I read the right. the 
Cespedalian vocabulary, to use another unnecessarily long word, as being, it doesn't rub me the wrong way. I don't think I can, I think you're right that you could probably do without it and it might be better, but I read it as being kind of part of the same impulse to over articulate and over explain. So it doesn't, it doesn't bother me, but I don't, but I also wouldn't necessarily feel like I need to defend it. I think like, yeah, you could cut that and that would be fine. What about the story ending with a, um, a, question that's not answered because I feel like the the place that the story builds most traditional momentum is on the last page where she asks her closest friend who she knows she can trust to give a true answer um, the question that she feels most difficult to ask which is that like please be honest please be honest I'm unbearable right I'm as unbearable as I think I am and we as a reader know that she is as unbearable as she thinks she is and we know that the friend knows that she is as unbearable as she thinks she is and it really is a moment of tension whether the friend is going to tell her or not yeah um but Foster Wallace in, I think what is, I haven't read all of his work clearly, but what is relatively typical of him, he doesn't give us the satisfaction one way or the other of an answer. Sure. The yeah. story just ends before then. Does that feel um, suitable to the interminable nature of depression to you and therefore the inevitable only way it could end or as a cop yeah. out? Oh no, um, I mean, I, I think like there's, in a way it, it reads to me a lot like the end of The Sopranos where where famously exactly. you know, t- Tony looks up at a moment where arguably that you you might think that you know the screen goes black suddenly mid mid song mid scene and you you might very easily assume that he's just been murdered or he could not be murdered but in a way like even though of course that makes all the difference in the world in that moment it sort of doesn't matter in our larger vision of him as a character because like in the same way like maybe this is a moment where a friend will come really clean with her but it's not like that's finally going to change her pattern of thought and maybe her friend will say what we sort of assume she has been saying all along, which is a like well-intended sort of white lie about how, well, I just really want, I just really worry about you and want you to take good care of yourself. And I care, you know, so I, I think like in a way it doesn't, it's, there's all the difference in the world between those two outcomes, but they sort of, it sort of doesn't matter which one. And and I also think like what you're, if you're asking like for a, she asks for a, um, how was she to decide and describe even to herself, facing herself, what all she had learned about, what all she had learned said about her and like sort of that articulation is the whole story like we get part of the the thrust of the story is to give us a a a a sort of scrupulous articulation of exactly how annoying depressed people are when talking as well as how much they know that and the problem and like the need to talk about it while also knowing that it sucks to hear people talk about it is is itself a part of the pain like that that seems to me like it seems like the story sort of answers the question so you don't really need the the, the friend to are you surprised that they always pick up in the story that they there's not pick up the a, phone? yeah that there's not a digression where people aren't picking up the phone i i kept on expecting that uh, and then her to imagine that they're all talking to one another about it and yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. it's a it's funny how reliable David Foster Wallace makes this group of friends that they are always there yeah. to be whined at by her. I think, yeah, no, I mean, I think like, yeah, probably more accurately, they would pick up the phone not as often. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think like pro- probably more and more like more realistically, there would be some, some unanswered phone calls. I think partly it's a, it's a demonstration of like, let's see, let's give her an, 
amazingly, incredibly generous set of friends. Like, let's give her a really robust support system, and they're always willing to let her talk at length, and they're always reassure her that she's not annoying, and it's and see how that's still hell. I think it's kind of the challenge. Whereas, like, yeah, like a depressed person who's who's increasingly cut off from people. Like, yeah, we we know that sucks, and we kind of don't need to have it demonstrated to us. I guess. Yeah. Have you read works that seem that 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 depict depression? in a successful way as this one does i mean yeah would you would you count what, what's the Camus where his mom dies the stranger i yeah with, with i that, read the stranger and i i mean i probably need to reread it i'd never had much i never responded much to that book uh yeah. i i think the little it's a little brief moment but i and i've read, written about it elsewhere but i i think there's a little brief moment in um the end of the affair where uh mm-hmm where the narrator refers to like that black ailment and he just like basically he loses a day or he loses he loses like several days and he just sort of like refers to it obliquely but it feels very true the way he does that i think like the long the biggest um artistic rendering of depression that i've seen that i I, that felt really true is is the the movie melancholia Mm -hmm. uh which is which i also know like as with this, like I, this is a story, like I recommended this to Alice, and I think her response was like, "Huh," uh, and then she brought, like brought up a different thing we could talk about instead. <laughs> and I think like that's, that's <laughs> so like, I was I people. was choice B as someone to discuss the story with you. Uh, I think I think like I am reminded Alice of a lot instead. because it's so funny, and so I was reminded of it when I was reading something for her, and then I reminded it again reading something for you, and you were the sucker who said yes. Uh, Got it. Yeah, but like Melancholia, similarly, I, like I'll recommend it to people, and they're like, "I fucking hated that movie. <laughs> it was so <laughs> painful to watch." Yeah, but like I, I think that's yeah. I, I and the sun also rises. Sort of the, has a good depressed person. Yeah, it, it does. A... It it feels more like um, a it feels different in a way just because there's such an obvious and specific event and reason why, that, yeah, right? Like, um, Invisible. Which we've talked about in the past. That invisible what? In, in, the Invisible Man is not oh. the just regular Invisible Man, right? There's yeah, no Invisible Man. Yeah, I. I mean, I that story, that whole book is just such a, a extraordinary. Like it's it's one of those books. It's like a tornado that just like picks up all of America. <laughs> right, uh, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I. I don't. I, the the specific depression in it doesn't necessarily stand out. You know, weirdly, I, it's a very flawed novel. But I do have a vague recollection. Body politic by Brian Platzer. Is that what you're gonna? <laughs> it's it's never really spoken to me. But it's I, a very uh, flawed novel. I can't identify but, any virtues. I don't remember why I brought it up. But I, no, I was gonna say I I feel I've it's been like probably like twenty eight years since I read it. But uh, I do feel I have like a vague memory of thinking that Giovanni's room had a pretty accurate depiction of depression i don't i, I well yeah that's i mean it both from giovanni and the narrator i guess they're, yeah, they're going through simultaneous true, depressions yeah. together and they're stuck in that small room that's yeah, pretty good yeah. that's a good if, one I, I really wish that book had just gotten like a better line at it i just felt like there are a lot of lines that were like ah, this could have been tight as i love that book that's one of my it's, favorite yeah. books if, oh, if, yeah, if yeah, you catch me in the right mood i'll tell you that yeah. it's, it's my favorite book i there's something very um like juvenile about the book yeah you know yeah. there's something very like it's um, like a, yeah it feels like very much full like of a, itself like young, and young maximalist novel. and like a young but i there's something about the language that's so flailing that that i don't know that works to describe that yeah. 
fear and loneliness and you know coming to terms with the sexuality and, and all of that that yeah. i i think works i i, and you I lived, wouldn't and you want to live in paris edited. for a little bit right at, at, at that age as a lonely yeah, right so you so, yeah i can, yeah, I can which, see that which yeah, definitely that perfect yeah no i mean it, it's a it's definitely like there's a reason that's stuck with me um like it's it's yeah it's not something to be sneezed at oh and then i think i think like the other two that maybe leap out is like there is a passage in all the king's men where the narrator has a kind of a crisis and drives to California. And that felt like, I just, I just, I just felt I recognized it. And then though it's a different kind of, it's like a, a folie depression. I'm mispronouncing <laughs> it, I'm sure. But like, like a certain kind of marital uh, misery and that's like, that right. feels linked to depression is uh, um, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I think that that feels For sure like, right yeah, that's like seeped that in that same something really right about that right and i guess um, all of jesus's son is uh is similarly successful i've only seen the movie demonstrating i've heard I, i've heard the book is really wonderful. yeah i need really to, i just oh, saw, saw the movie I mean, theater when i was in high school but yeah I, i've heard yeah I, yeah you 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 should read that you gotta go i need to go yeah all right yeah i, I gotta go um but uh, more, as always yeah more soon That was my conversation with Brian about my life in fantasy sports slash can men be friends by Zach Cheney Rice, as well as The Depressed Person by David Foster Wallace. I'm probably going to have abbreviated show notes to, uh, this week because it's already Wednesday. And as I said, been a long, <laughs> been a long couple of weeks at this point. Uh, uh, so here, though, is a short poem I've been wanting to share with you that this is this is one that is unusual in that i i actually received this one in the slush pile for the magazine which i don't usually name but for the sake of offering a link to this week's episode i will name here it's literary matters it's the online publication of the alscw this is a poem this is a poem by maury creech i have met maury a couple times a long long while ago and when he sent in the submission i had i'd already reviewed one of his books and i was actually working on a, a long piece kind of a, an overview of his uh of his career he is he is uh i think he's a really excellent living poet who is far less known and celebrated than he should be he also you know it is no secret that slush piles are not at all egalitarian and that there is a lot of favor trading and name dropping and card pulling and so forth involved in the process and typically for a writer who knows an editor personally or certainly one who has uh, you know enough of a reputation or name uh, as as Maury does. I mean, Maury, whose whose uh, third book was shortlisted for the Pulitzer in a shortlist of, of of two or maybe three. Uh, typically, poets in that position will will write directly directly to the editor, rather than bothering with a slush pile. And it would I would have completely been uh, delighted. I would have I wouldn't have batted an eye, and I would in fact simply have been pleased if Maury had reached out in that way. Not only did he not do that, he paid the submission fee. I mean, it, there's a long history to the submission fee for literary matters. That I'm not going to get into, uh, but it, we're ho we're hoping to change it in near in the near future and. Uh, Maury paid a, I'll just say this, he, 
he went out of his way to be not just not a big dog, but incredibly humble and considerate and sweet and uh, unassuming. And, uh, and just sent in this packet of pretty amazing poems, uh, one of which is, I think we took, I think, I think we took a few of them, but, but the, the one that, that really stuck in my mind was called Giving Myself Up. Uh, this is not a poem of Cameron's uh, mad prisms of language. It's an extremely plain spoken poem, but it's one I have not been able to stop thinking about since I read it. So I'll put a link in the show notes. This is Giving Myself Up by Maury Creech. I am tired of having a name. Every time I wake, it grinds its teeth like the gears of a moving van, and it smells of soot, like the sweat of being a man, and it weighs like a stone I carry for no one's sake. In the courthouse, it echoes down the long corridors, and it creaks in the bed springs of cheap rooms, and it croons in bars. It whistles up to the gaps between the stars and down to the truck stop bathroom's piss-stained floors. I have betrayed it to the dark when there was no one to blame and whispered it seductively into the ear of danger. But I am tired and I want to be done with it for good. I will give it up. I will answer to nothing. I will be a stranger. I will put on the silence like an executioner's hood. Here it is, poor neck, squirming on the block, my name. I don't want to over explain this poem because I think it, it so, so effectively represents itself. Uh, this is a poem that, uh, as John Gardner might say, teachers uh, would shy away from teaching because it doesn't need them to explain it. It doesn't need to be presented or glossed. It's simply, it gets the job done perfectly well without them. A couple of thoughts, though. It is a, it is a sonnet. It's, a, it's, a, it's an, uh, an unconventional sonnet uh, with a, not a rhyme scheme I recognize. Oh, is he doing just the simple thing I do? Yeah, he is. I'm a fucking idiot. So this is a sonnet, and he has simply <laughs> broken the lines uh, roughly in half. Yeah. Um, I was thrown by quarter, no, quarters and floors. So what is it? What is he doing here? So A, B, B. Oh, it's A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. What? I'm a fucking idiot. I'm sorry. So blame, danger, good, B, hood, name. Dangerous train. Yeah, there's a little something, a little wrinkly is happening in this, in the in the the, the extended sestet. But, uh, but at any rate, he's you know it's something I've talked about before. It it is not a poem that announces itself as rhyming, though. Though if you can't hear the rhymes, then you're probably uh, hard of hearing, or at least harder of hearing than I am. The two obvious antecedents to this poem, I, I do by, to my by my lights are "Anonymous" by Everett Maddox, and um, "Tired" by Fenton Johnson, which I read on a very early uh, episode of this podcast. 
Um, he even includes the, the, the line, I am tired. Um, uh, but both of those poems are poems in which the speaker sort of sort of enumerates all of his all of the elements of his life that he is eager to be rid of. Here, those elements are uh, are summed up by the speaker's name. I think this is a poem. I have I have a real soft soft spot for elemental poems, poems in which the the pieces used, the images, the words used are relatively fundamental they don't require a great deal of elaboration i think of them almost as like um to to piss off all the scientists and mathematicians in the, in the audience a limited number to be sure i think of something like noble gases or 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 uh, uh primary numbers and these elements that can't be further reduced that are that are sort of rounded off and complete in themselves and for that reason very difficult to use in a way that is that feels new that that still draws blood. And here he manages to, in the extremely vivid closing image, I will put on the silence like an executioner's hood, right? The silence is the um, tenor and the executioner's hood is a vehicle. But then in the next sentence, that execution, but ex which was simply evoked by the simile before, is now literal. Here it is, poor neck, and here's one of the, the most effective words in the poem, squirming on the block, my name. Here it is, poor neck, lying on the block, my name. Far, far weaker ending, squirming, squirming. Gives us the, just that resistance, that little bit of live fear, discomfort, physical presence that really, really sells that closing image of the, the chopping block for the speaker's name. So that's all I'm going to say about it because again, I think the poem speaks it's for itself far better than I could. I'm just going to read it one more time and then sign off. This is Giving Myself Up by Maury Creech. I am tired of having a name. Every time I wake, it grinds its teeth like the gears of a moving van and it smells of soot like the sweat of being a man. And it weighs like a stone I carry for no one's sake. In the courthouse it echoes down the long corridors and it creaks in the bed springs of cheap rooms and it croons in bars. It whistles up to the gaps between the stars and down to the truck stop bathroom's piss-stained floors. I have betrayed it to the dark when there was no one to blame and whispered it seductively into the ear of danger. But I am tired and I want to be done with it for good. I will give it up. I will answer to nothing. I will be a stranger. I will put on the silence like an executioner's hood. Here it is, poor neck squirming on the block. My name. That was Giving Myself Up by Maury Creech, and this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you all so much for listening. You can reach me, as always, at sleericketts at gmail.com, especially you big five poetry book editors writing in with your furious refutations of my casual dismissal. I, uh, I cannot wait to read your uh, grammatically erroneous emails. <laughs> <laughs> filled with subject verb agreement errors you fucking hacks all right uh that's all <laughs> Fuck. i'm never gonna put out a book with a publisher now uh with any luck i will be speaking to you again very soon until then cool.